The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Schizophrenia Community Radio. By listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio, you'll be joining, supporting, and gaining strength from the schizophrenia community. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 10 of Schizophrenia Community Radio. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is schizophrenia, false memories, and family memoirs. Schizophrenia is a serious mental illness. Um, Schizophrenia in North America as a whole, that's including Canada, affects some million, four million people. It affects men and women with equal frequency. Now, it most often appears in men in their late teens or early 20s and in women in their late 20s or early 30s. Uh, Schizophrenia is characterized by psychotic symptoms. These involve difficulties maintaining contact with reality, and these difficulties may include what are called hallucinations. That's hearing voices or seeing things that are not based in reality. Um, The uh, problems with reality can also take the form of delusions, which are distorted false beliefs and disorganized thought processes, and they can also occur as false memories. And because of all the difficulties it creates, schizophrenia interferes with a person's ability to think clearly, manage emotions, and make decisions and relate to others. And it also impairs a person's ability to function to their potential when it's not treated. All of which is why our topic, schizophrenia false memories and family memoirs is so important for the schizophrenia community. To discuss it, our guest, my guest, is Catherine Flannery Deering. Catherine is the second of 10 children. Her younger brother, Paul, was diagnosed with schizophrenia at the age of 16. Catherine is the author of a book, Shot in the Head, A Sister's Memoir, A Brother's Struggle. She writes about her experiences caring for her brother and speaks on the role of the family in caring for a person with mental illness. Her poetry and essays have appeared in Inkwell magazine, as well as in what she calls several other small journals and in an anthology of essays about coping with mental illness. She holds an MFA degree from Manhattanville College, a BA from Le Moyne College, and an MBA from the University of Minnesota at Duluth. She's a former CFO at a community bank in New York. So, Catherine, welcome to the show. And the first question I have for you is this. Please tell us more about your life your career, and your experiences 
as the elder sister of your brother Paul as he lived with schizophrenia. Catherine? Well, thank you, Gordon. Um, I, as you mentioned, I was the second of ten children, and uh, I was 12 when Paul was born. So my connection with him at the beginning was almost more like an aunt to a nephew than uh, a little brother. There were so many other brothers and sisters closer to me, uh, to my age. But uh, as uh, when he got sick, when he was 16, I was already married and not living at home. I was living in another city, as a matter of fact. But uh, I moved back to the area, uh, to the New York City area, where, where my parents and Paul were living, and became involved with him then as an adult. Uh, at first, it was just sort of helping my mother out once in a while, because she used to visit him all the time at a mental hospital that he was in. But once uh, my parents both passed away, uh, responsibility for Paul fell on the siblings. And um, so the relationship changed quite a bit. We became responsible for trying to keep track of him when social services agencies moved him about from apartments to group homes or wherever. And uh, they were not very good at communicating with us where he was. Sometimes we'd lose track of him. But uh, we managed to to keep the connection going, let him know that he was loved, and uh, just do our best. Right. Now, please tell us about your book, Shot in the Head, and explain why you wrote it, and also explain what Shot in the Head refers to. Catherine? Well, uh, Shot in the Head came about because, um, well, one day I went to visit Paul. He was in a nursing home at this point. And uh, the uh, daughter of uh, an older man that he was in, a, uh, that, who was his roommate, came out of her room and she said, "Oh, I just heard about your brother, and uh, you know that was so awful." And I said, "Well, what did you hear about him?" And she said, "Well, he said he'd been shot in the head. They never caught the guy who did it." And I, I almost laughed, but it was really very sad. He, he frequently told people he had been shot in the head because. I think he'd noticed that people are very sympathetic to someone who's had a head wound, and perhaps their their behavior is a little odd because of it, but not so supportive of someone who had um, a serious mental illness. On the other hand, sometimes I think he really was did think he had been shot in the head. He he just had these strange thoughts that went through his head, and that was part of his illness. Sometimes he thought he'd been scalped. His first psychosis, he, he ran through the house screaming that he'd been scalped, where in reality he had shaved his head and nicked himself several times and was bleeding profusely from all those nicks. But he said he'd been scalped, and that was another persistent uh, delusion that followed him through his life. So uh, that's why that's where the title came from. Right. Now, the shot in the head and also the point about being scalped, are these what you would describe as false memories? Uh, yeah, uh, the, the line between calling something a delusion or a false memory, I'm, I'm not quite sure what, what that line is. But yes, in the sense that he thought it was something that had happened in the past to him, that it was a real event and had changed his life. 
And he uh, he really thought, he, he got in arguments with us sometimes about how, remember back when I used to be uh, an Indian? Uh, he thought he had been a Mohican Indian. Uh, and he said back when I used to have black hair, but he was blonde. And uh, he, he would re- just really think that that had happened. So um, he, he just was not connecting properly. I, I don't, you know, it's very difficult to make your way through the world if you're remembering things that didn't happen. Right. Now, please tell us about, more about Paul's false memories and how you, his sister, came to recognize these false memories for what they really were, false memories. Catherine? Um, yeah. Um, one, one time we had uh, brought him to uh, Chris, to my house for Christmas dinner. All the family was getting together, or a lot of people anyways, probably 25 people in the house. And uh, he came across uh, my husband in the kitchen. My husband happened to be in there alone, and uh, Paul went up to him and and all of a sudden grabbed him by the collar and tried to smash his head against the wall and said, I ought to kill you. He said, well, why? And he had some strange story about these awful things that he thought Ken had done to him. And and that he and also that he'd been killing Indians and this was terrible and so Paul should kill him, and Paul and Ken said no uh, you, you're, you're no that never happened Paul and don't worry I'm, I'm your brother you don't want to kill me and he said uh, yeah okay and and he was talked down, but what so because he carried around all these violent um, uh, memories of things that had happened to him. He, he he was uh, you know sort of afraid of things and uh, worried about things and uh, found it very difficult to uh, get along in public places. He thought people were going to steal his soul if they looked at him in the eye, so he wouldn't make eye contact with people, and um, uh, you know he's just completely unable to function. Now, in the course of the care that he would receive from the healthcare system in some way, particularly from psychiatrists. Um, what was their understanding of these false memories, Catherine? Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know what their impression was of them. I, I know that they knew that they weren't true, and I know that they accepted his thoughts as, um, what they were, some sort of a delusion, or as, as we're calling it today, a false memory. But sometimes they allowed them to interfere with their care of him. For example, he thought he shouldn't brush his teeth, or, or he shouldn't allow anyone to clean his teeth. And because they let him refuse to accept dental care, all his teeth fell out, or, or had to be pulled finally. And and so they allowed him to make decisions about his life based on false beliefs about about how the life should be conducted. So sometimes the the medical care community did what they knew was best for him, and sometimes they allowed him to make choices that were obviously poor ones, but they said it was his right to do it. Right. Now, we're going to talk more about these things, but um, it's the time when we have to take the short break. 
um, as I always say, we have to pay the rent, and this is where, where we we pay it. So we'll, we'll go okay. to the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Catherine Flannery Deering. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Inner Revolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Catherine Flannery Deering. Our topic is schizophrenia, false memories, and family memoirs. Now, Catherine, now let's talk about the challenges that false memories created for Paul in his interactions with present and past realities. That is, present things that are going on at the moment, past realities are those memories that go back that you've been talking about. And let's also talk about the challenges that these false memories created for your family as a whole. So first question then is, please describe the challenges that false memories created for Paul in his interactions with present reality. Catherine? Well, one of one of the things that he uh, frequently uh, talked about was actually kind of fun. Uh, he really thought that he was Clint Eastwood, and he had starred in many famous movies, and he was a millionaire. <laughs> so he sometimes would uh, give all his, whatever he had away to other people and say, well, I've got more where that came from. <laughs> so he was really, it was, it was kind of fun for him, I guess. But um, 
it was not very practical. Uh, and sometimes uh, memories uh, or his, uh, his false thoughts were uh, very, very sad. Uh, he, he thought, somehow rather connected with losing his teeth, he thought the teeth had sort of fallen to the ground and had turned into babies. And those were his children. And he thought that hundreds of these babies existed. And, and I had him out in a diner one time for, for lunch, and all of a sudden he put his head on his, uh, down on his arms, and he started just sobbing and sobbing. And I said, Paul, what's wrong? And he said, it's the babies. They're, they're crying. They, they're looking for me and can't find me. I don't know what happened to them, but I can hear them crying. And it was just so sad. So here's something that had never happened. Um, no one else could see. But it was following him around and making his life difficult. And I think you'd probably say, it would, would you, that it was making difficulties for him in making decisions for himself. Would that be right? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. He, he, he was like a, a small child who, you know, will go for the cookie jar rather than eat dinner. You know, he, yeah. he, he couldn't decide what to, what to eat or, or drink or, or small things like that. And he certainly couldn't decide how to manage his money since he thought he was a millionaire and he had a lot more where that came from. <laughs> yeah. Now, let's talk about the, it's the same question, but let's talk about the challenges that false memories created for Paul in his interactions with past reality. That is, what he thought had actually happened in the past, and you've already mentioned several examples of those. Please talk about, any, for any one or several of those examples, the challenges that these created for him. Well, I, I think uh, one of the biggest ones for him was um, that because of some sort of a connection with Native Americans and believing he'd been scalped and that he was somehow rather a Native American, he, w he was kind of convinced that there was some sort of shamanistic uh, thing going on and, and anyone around him uh, could steal his soul if, if he... he Looked at them in the eye, <laughs> so he he was uh, he wouldn't look at people. So that m made him appear shifty, or you know, if someone won't look at you, if they look sort of sideways at you and mumble, you know, people around him would stare at him and point at him sometimes, and then that would make him even more paranoid. So w by carrying around these thoughts with him all the time. His perception of what was going on in any given situation, in a room, in a hospital setting, or wherever it was, was not necessarily what was really happening. There was some other whole drama going on in the room that none of the rest of us could see. Hmm. Now, still on the theme of challenges, please describe for us the challenges that Paul's false memories created for your family as a whole. Catherine? Well, because he was so ill, um, 
You know, a, a lot of people, especially going back into the 70s and 80s when he was first diagnosed, a lot of people just don't understand that mental illness is real. They, they, they really think that if someone just will take some pill or, you know, just, tr- just try their best, they can sort of shake it off and get over it. And my father, unfortunately, was one of those people, I think. He just couldn't believe that this had happened to his, his handsome boy. So, you know, he, he got very depressed and would just sit around grumbling. And, and he wouldn't even go visit him in the, in the, in the hospital after a while. And, and when we brought him home for visits, uh, he would end up arguing with him, you know, saying, Paul, stop saying uh, crazy things. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's a real challenge for the family to, to themselves get over any false ideas they have about mental illness and educate themselves about what's really happening here and, and perhaps learn how to better relate to the, to the person who's ill so that they can try to help them. Uh, instead of uh, challenge them and, and, and make it worse. So I think uh, all of us, and of course with 10 children, my parents, for all of us uh, at one stage or another, we had to go through that. We had to realize that we couldn't just talk him out of it, that he was going to be this way and we would do our best to try to keep him calm because we noticed when he was stressed out, he would get worse uh, and make sure he took whatever medication he was supposed to have, make sure he ate properly, and, and just do our best to try to, try to ease things along and uh, work with the doctors to try to help him be as, as good as he could be. Right. Have you had, ever had the opportunity to discuss with other families, um, with a family member, experiencing the same kinds of challenges that Paul faced. And if you have had that opportunity, what were the kind of things that you heard from them, these other families? Catherine? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, After talking to many other families, uh, I've come to the conclusion that Paul was one of the lucky ones. Um, He was never homeless. He was never in jail. um, And his family stuck by him. Uh, He was in a psychiatric institution for many years, so he never went through the most violent stages, the, which tend to be when, when men are younger, like in their 20s. Some of the people I've known, uh, uh, one, one couple I met, uh, their son had been acting bizarre. He was a high school boy, and you know he was starting to act really strange. He was skipping class and acting odd. But... Uh, they had had him to a couple of uh, psychiatrists, and no one would keep him in a hospital. They kept sending him home. And one morning, uh, he came into his parents' bedroom with a knife, and he said that uh, he knew that they were Al Qaeda operatives, and they were going to destroy the. Um, dis- they were going to do something. I can't remember what exactly. So he started stabbing at them, and um, he did manage to stab his husband his father across the face. The man now has a horrible scar on his face, and his mother got away and managed to call the police, and he's now in prison. 
Uh, and there were two or three other stories like that. A, a young man who was released after multiple hospitalizations, and every time he would he would um, get to a point where he was just a little bit better stabilized, and they would release him back to the, his parents, and um, he he killed his mother. Uh, he again th- he thought I can't remember what he thought she was. She was some sort of a robot who was going to destroy things. You know, some very bizarre delusion, and um, so now he's in prison for life uh, for murder. I, I can't get over the fact that the medical community is not keeping these people who are very, very ill in, in a hospital somewhere. It's not their fault. They didn't want to be like this, and um, uh, we really need uh, better, better ways to care for for people with the most severe versions of schizophrenia, the the, the deinstitutionalization movement that uh, came about back in the 60s, really, uh, is great for the people who are helped by the modern psychotropic drugs. Uh, uh, there are there is that level of people, maybe 20, 30 percent of, of people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia, who are very helped by medication and and do overcome most of the symptoms. But there's another third of them that are more like my brother Paul or the two young men in the stories I just told you who um, who never really achieve any meaningful recovery from the illness. It's really just very heartbreaking. That's something that uh, needs a lot more discussion, doesn't it? When there's still the persistence of the belief that if the young person would only snap out of it or whatever phrase people want to use, uh, everything would be all right. And your point, Catherine, is no, for some of the people who behave as you've described, this is a serious mental illness for which there is no cure. Now, just very quickly, is that summary back to you a fair, a fair expression of your experience and your yeah, message. Yeah, well, you know, absolutely. And I would, I would compare it, most people understand diabetes a little bit. They know that if you have diabetes, your pancreas is not producing insulin, you can't eat sweets, and you need to either take a shot or a pill to control your blood sugar. They maybe don't really understand all the mechanics of it, but they know it's something like that. Yeah. And it, it becomes a condition if you take your insulin every day, and you're really very careful about what you eat, uh, you can have a, a pretty full life. But if you have a very severe case, no matter what you do, you're still having problems. Uh, you end up with people who have a pump that's attached right. to their body, and it, it sends a little bit of insulin into the body all the time. It's very, very difficult to control it. It's a condition. It is not anything they can control themselves. They can't will themselves right. into not having diabetes. It, it's there. And, and saying, oh, well, you shouldn't eat so many. You, should, you brought it on yourself because you, you got fat and you ate too much candy or something. I don't know what you'd say. It's, it's, it's just ridiculous. Uh, it, it's a condition they have now. They need to take the medication. Some people, the medication is much more effective than for others. But luckily for people with diabetes, their medication does pretty much control their issue. 
Right. With mental but, illness, with schizophrenia, some people, the medications, even, even when they're careful and do everything, yeah. don't quite work. It's a different story. Yeah. Now, once again, we've come to the time where we need to take the break. So we're going to do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Averley, and my guest is Catherine Flannery Deering. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Hospitality News Network for a look inside the travel, hotel, restaurant, and hospitality industry. Host Stephen Nicole and his guests will teach you everything you've wanted to know about this fascinating industry. Who knows? You might just want to change your own career path. At the very least, you might end up being a preferred customer. The Hospitality News Network is broadcast live every Monday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Catherine Flannery Daring. Our topic is schizophrenia, false memories, and family memoirs. Uh, Catherine, now let's talk about your family's m- memoirs and memories and how these may help support family caregivers and families with family members living with false memories. So please tell us more about the ways your book, Shot in the Head, is your very own memoir. Catherine? Well, you know, we all have our own life trajectory, if you want to call it that. Uh, You know, mine was going about my business and my children and everything, and then I I got involved in in looking after Paul. And uh, uh, the end of his life, the last couple of years of his life, he he was quite ill, and he really needed a lot of help, physically ill. And after he died, it was just this feeling of, of overwhelming sadness that we hadn't been able to do enough. Uh, you know, our, our goal as a, as a group uh, with my sisters and brothers was if we can just keep them safe until one day some medical miracle will happen and he'll get better, <laughs> um, you know, that would be what we would do. But um, sometimes life is 
what happens while you're waiting for that miracle. It doesn't happen. So um, I just wanted to get it all down. And uh, we had written a lot of emails to each other while he was sick, you know, with uh, nine brothers and sisters trying to coordinate who was going to visit him when and things. It was busy. And there were people out of town. So I I printed out uh, like 100 pages of the emails, and I thought, maybe I'll, you know, get rid of the duplicates and edit them a little bit and um, write a couple little stories that I'd already kind of half written and just give it to my siblings. But then I thought our story was a story that other people would want to share. So I, I made it my own story. I, you know, it's, it's, there are all these emails in it. There's pictures of the family. There's, you know, stories about before Paul was sick so people can realize he really was, you know, someone, part of a real family, a real person. It wasn't always that way. And it was just, it sort of became an archive of our efforts yes. to do right by our brother. Now, did you write the book um, while you were still caring for him, or did you write it after his death? Well, the emails obviously were written while he was still alive, <clears throat> and uh, that's almost a third of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're sort of interspersed. But also, uh, we uh, I had written a couple of essays about him, uh, while he was still alive, I, I was actually working on a different book, and I just kept, when I'd sit down to write that book, I would sort of get diverted into writing something about what Paul had done that day or said recently, and and um, I just sort of, I'm, it was almost therapy, I guess, just to get it out. Yeah, yeah. But most of the book was written after he passed away. Right. Now... Please explain, if this is true, how your memoir and your family's memoirs and memories may have helped support your family in understanding Paul's challenges, the challenges caused by (coughs) false memories, while he was alive and after his death. Catherine? Um, Well, to answer that question, I'll I'll tell you a little story about, um, I picked him up one day, uh, to take him to a, um, uh, it wasn't a chemo appointment. It was to a radiation appointment. He had, he had lung cancer. And I, I had picked him up and he had had his treatment and, um, we were driving along and it was winter day, but it was very sunny out and warm. So I put the top down on the car and we were driving along and he was listening to his favorite, um, um, Stevie Wonder CD. And uh, we stopped at a stoplight, and I was thinking, oh, poor guy. He's, uh, uh, you know, he's been through so much. I wonder what's going through his head. And thinking about all the awful mental hospitals he'd lived in and all these terrible group homes and, uh, you know, just all the worst of it. And uh, so I said, so what are you doing, Paul? What are you thinking? And he looked at me, and he sort of took a sip of his Coke, and he said, this is the life. <laughs> uh-huh. And it gave me such, um, I just couldn't believe it, that here I was thinking all these bad things, and here he was thinking all these good things. He was, he was happy that I had taken him out, that he was having a nice afternoon, 
that he got to drive around in my nice convertible. And um, he, it made me realize that families can make a difference. That if he didn't have me and my sisters and brothers who took turns taking him out, if he didn't have us, his life might have been as miserable as I was thinking it could be. Yeah. But with us, with us, it was better. I'm going to come back to that, but um, better that you were talking about later on, because that's very mm. important. But I would like to now ask you a more general question, that, which is this. What more would you like to do to improve support for families with family members living with false memories? Catherine? Um, well, I'm, but one thing I am doing already is, is trying to a- help advocate for reform. In the U.S. right now, there's some movement on to pass some legislation. Um, maybe by the time people hear this this uh, conversation, it might have passed or, or been voted down. But we want to edu- um, ed- advocate, let let people know uh, our family stories. And so when I speak to people uh, once in a while at a library, you know, doing a book talk. I always uh, talk about how telling family stories helps people understand that people with serious mental illness are people. They're people with families. They're people who had hopes and dreams, and they've been sidelined by their illness. And um, the more people can relate to mentally ill people as people, and not just that bum on the corner, you know, talking to himself or whatever, uh, the more likely it is that they will help support better, better laws and better, uh, better care for people with illnesses like this. Would it be right, Catherine, to say, therefore, from what you've just been saying, the descriptions of the experiences of people like you and the families like yours are more than just interesting, they're actually important in getting the understanding moving forward, getting the support moving forward, and getting the message across that something more and better needs doing. Is that a fair comment, Catherine? Oh, absolutely. And and also, the more people speak out, the more we give comfort to people who are perhaps just entering this uh other side of the looking glass world of caring for someone who's been recently diagnosed. And, and if they can learn that other people have figured out a way to deal with this and that they're not alone, they're not the only ones, I think that serves a real purpose. Right. Another quick question. It's actually a very long answer, but just quickly. Um, was did your family ever experience guilt arising, say, from the idea that you could have done more, you didn't do enough? Was that a factor in your lives? Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Absolutely. The damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. You, you, you know, you're busy with your other responsibilities, especially as a sibling as opposed to a parent. You know, my mother did everything she could. I I was having my own life. I was getting married. I was having children. I was, you know, working on a job. 
And I think, oh, you know, I could have... I could have shared, saved a few extra afternoons and visited him more often. And, you know, and I could have done this and I could have done that. And, uh, and yet, on the other hand, when we had him here to visit at home, uh, you know, for Christmas or Easter or maybe for a family party in the summer, uh, some of the nieces and nephews weren't so happy to have him around. They were kind of afraid of him. So then they'd be mad at me for inviting him. <laughs> so... There is always a feeling of guilt, and um, I don't know how to get around that. And I think just back to the point about sharing experiences, that other people might be listening to you saying what you just said, um, because they're in the same circumstances, to hear what you went through in that, what you experienced, what you thought. And what you wondered about will be helpful to them because I believe it may help them feel that they're not alone. Just quickly, is that a yes or no answer? Do you agree with that or am I going too far? No, I I, I do agree with that. Right. Now, we've come to the point at which we have to take the break again. So we're going to do that. Um, This is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guest is Catherine Flannery Deering. You're listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Schizophrenia Community Radio with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any suggestions, questions, or comments you'd like to share with him, please send them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's doc, letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. 
Now back to Schizophrenia Community Radio. Welcome back to our listeners to Schizophrenia Community Radio and Catherine Flannery Deering. Our topic is schizophrenia, false memories and family memoirs. Now, Catherine, please tell us about your caring, your family's caring for Paul at the end of his life as he died, as you've told us, from not schizophrenia, but cancer in the lungs. And please explain what you and the family learned from this experience about caring for him in his last days. And please share your messages for families and family caregivers caring for family members with schizophrenia. So the first part of that question, long-winded question (laughs) is this. Please tell us about caring for Paul at the end of his life. Catherine? Um, Well, Paul um, had been in the hospital a couple of times uh, and they thought it was pneumonia. And then um, when they, someone wanted him tested for um, uh, lung cancer, he wouldn't allow them to do a lung bi- biopsy because he said they were going to steal his lungs. So two sisters and I, uh, his twin sister Eileen and my sister Monica and I, uh, took him to an oncologist and talked him into getting the biopsy. And um, when the oncologist told him that it was lung cancer, uh, he jumped up and tried to choke the oncologist and told him that he was lying. So um, the doctor, for very understandable reasons, said uh, that we would have to be with him at any time that he was uh, being treated. So we took turns, and it became... it became like a, a ritual. Uh, taking care of him took on a life of its own. Uh, I, two or three days a week, I would take him to the to the oncologist, or I'd take him to the uh, radiation uh, doctor, or just out for a meal. Uh, we visited him almost every day, and kept encouraging him to eat and take care of himself. Uh, by this time, we had had him moved into a a nursing home, and it was. Uh, a nursing home for old people, and he was only 48 years old. But he, he liked it there. It was the nicest room he had had in, in 30 years. Uh, he had a nice bedspread, and um, people were good to him. The food was better than the food he'd been eating for years. And uh, it was really interesting to see how, with people really taking care of him uh, and um Good, good food. Uh, doctors checking his his medical levels. Uh, he became a lot better. He he his psychosis um, weakened, or I don't know what the right word is. Yeah, he still thought he was uh, either James Bond or or, or uh, Clint Eastwood, but he he from time to time. But every once in a while, um, the person behind the illness sort of popped out, and. It was wonderful. Catherine, let me just ask you this. When the person behind the schizophrenia popped out, did that give you and your family any satisfaction, any hope, any sense that um, there was something good coming out of all of this, Catherine? Uh, 
yeah, I, I guess I guess that, that would be a, a fair thing to say. Um, it, it's sort of a conflicting thing, isn't it? That uh, here here he was with a very serious illness. We were still hoping he would come through it, but um, it, yet we could see that uh, the, the medications he was being given and, and food and everything else. Who knows? Maybe it was the chemo. Uh, it was helping him um, sense where he was and who he was talking with um, more often. And uh, I, I think we all got something from it. It was uh, well. The word transformative is a pretty strong word, but I'd say it was a transformative experience. And. Looking back now, that transformative experience, is that now something that you look back on with a sense that that was something good that you saw, that you learned, and that you would like to share with others, Catherine? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, I think any caregiver... For someone uh, in an end-of-life um, illness, more often it's someone caring for a parent. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I've heard others say something similar to this, that they, um, in, it wouldn't say they enjoyed caring for their parent in, through those difficulties, but they felt it was the right thing to do. And that's what I felt and that my sisters felt and my brother felt. This was the right thing to do. It's part of being human. In you know, whatever holy book you follow, you know, Bible, Koran, whatever it is, you know, caring for the least of these uh, is, is, um, is part of, of what we aim to make ourselves better humans. And um, this was the task assigned to us. Yes. Um, and and we did it. So we can yep. be glad we did it. And I think Paul can feel glad that he he became, um, that his life took on a certain amount of meaning to have yes. brought us all together in that way. Yeah. Now, this is the very last question. Please share your message for families and family caregivers caring for family members living with schizophrenia, drawing on the answers you've just given me to the last two questions. Catherine, please. I think when you're in the middle of it, you can lose some perspective. Uh, You can feel like, you know, what am am I doing here? Uh, I, I don't think nothing I'm doing seems to make any real difference because I think we tend to think that making a difference is curing the disease or, you know, causing some dramatic change. But sometimes uh, you can be glad that you, you did your part to make one person's life better. Yeah. And, and you just hold on to that thought and ask for help, uh, ask, ask to find out how other people... Uh, got through it, but then you can get back in and and do it and be be glad you're doing it. Yes, yes. That's the glad. That's a very good word to end on because 
the story of schizophrenia is so harsh and so unpleasant, not for everyone, but in the circumstances you've been describing. So thank you. And I want to say thank you for the writing you do. Thank you for sharing so openly your experience, your thoughts, the insights, and your opinions. And I want to say to you on behalf of everyone, all success to you in your own life and your own work. I want to say thank you to our listeners. And if anyone would like to send comments or ask questions, the email address to use is docg at familycaregiversunite.org. It will come to me. So please Join us, our dear listeners, for our next episode, which is called Recovery and Schizophrenia and What It Takes. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. Thank you again for joining us for Schizophrenia Community Radio with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thank you for supporting Schizophrenia Community Radio. We hope you, too, have gained strength. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 